Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Anities, and I want to thank you for taking the time to join us for today's show. On the show today, we have the very first Strikeforce Light Heavyweight Champion, Bobby Southworth. I'm really excited to have him on. You know him from the inaugural season, the very first season of the Ultimate Fighter. That's really where he kind of made it, made his name and uh, made a splash on the national scene from an MMA perspective. But this guy has been involved in a lot. He fought in Pride. Uh, he uh, helped get the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu program going at American Kickboxing Academy, one of the top MMA gyms in the world. Uh, and he's still training people today. So I'm really excited that we got to talk with him. Uh, we're going to talk about his time on The Ultimate Fighter. We're going to talk about that infamous weight cut. Uh, we're also going to talk about him training and getting ready to fight uh, Vernon, the, Vernon the Tiger White for the, the inaugural Strikeforce Light Heavyweight Championship and the fight that preceded that, his really ill-fated encounter with James the Sandman Irvin where the, the cage door came open and the fight was over in 17 seconds. So we delve into a lot. We also talk about what he's up to today. I do want to give you a bit of a disclaimer uh, I had some technical difficulties, and the audio quality for my my mic for my side uh, is not great. You can understand everything I'm saying, uh, but the quality is not as good as the quality that you're hearing right now. On Bobby's side, uh, it, it's fine. It's it's just the normal quality, but for my side, uh, unfortunately, uh, there there was an issue there. But the important thing is, is that you understand what's being said, and that of course Bobby uh, is the subject. So of course you want to hear him loudly and clearly, and you do. Uh, so with that, we're going to go ahead and get to the interview. Stay tuned. All right, welcome fans to Inside the Hexagon. On the line with us, we have uh, one of the uh, the legends of Strike Force, uh, very well known fighter, Bobby Southworth. Bobby, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time, and I really want to delve into kind of some of the the nuts and bolts of your background, but also really get into your time in in Strike Force as well, um, just to kind of. You know, give us give us some of that background. I understand you played basketball growing up before you got into uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. What, what what got you into to MMA and kind of what set the stage for you to to go into a career in mixed martial arts? You know, I I was an athlete my whole life, uh, football, basketball, track, um, in school, and uh, growing up in Santa Cruz on the coast, I I was a surfer. I mean, I surfed. I wouldn't say I was a surfer, but you know, the the beach is there and. And it's a, it's a really fun pastime. Um, you know, I, I played high school basketball, junior college, and then I went to UC Davis and played basketball there. And after college was done, um, it was, you know, you can play pickup basketball in the street, and those those can be fun games, but sometimes those always devolve into, like, arguing and fighting, and it was becoming not – it was becoming less enjoyable. You know, we, we I was doing a little semi-pro. We had a city league semi-pro team, and – but that was the season, and so the other nine months of the year, you're, you know, you're trying to play pickup, and I was just looking for something to do to stay in shape, something else, and, you know, I'd always been interested in martial arts, watching Bruce Lee movies, Jackie Chan movies, Chuck Norris, all that stuff, and one of my friends from high school brought me in, and he, he played the tape, the first tape of UFC 1 and UFC 2, and, you know, obviously it was... He was asking the questions, well, who do you think is going to win this fight? Who do you think is going to win that fight? It's most And most of the time that was when Hoist was fighting. And obviously seeing all the karate movies, the traditional martial arts movies, you're always picking the karate kung fu guy. And 
then they're getting choked out or armbarred or something <laughs> right, like that. And right. <laughs> then he then he finally kind of let it slip that he was um, had been going down to L.A. and training with the Gracies, um, and that he had arranged to bring a guy up, a purple belt up from Southern California, and they were going to open a school. And um, I was interested at the time. I had a daughter, and so I was working in the northern bay, North Bay in Oakland, and I was driving back to Santa Cruz on the weekends and spending time with her. And, you know, I knew nothing about jujitsu. And so I came down. I was working from 1130 at night to 730 in the morning, and then the classes were going to be from like 730 to 9 and then 930 to 11. So I drove down, got off work early and drove down super early in the morning, got there right as class was starting, took my first class, and I was instantly hooked. Um, and it kind of just went from there. I was, I was, you know, we could get off work early if we requested it. And so I was trying to get off early as much as I can to drive down there. And it was about an hour and 20 minute drive. And I did it for maybe a week and a half, two weeks. And then the same guy who my friend, like I put him in a submission and he kind of flipped out. I put him in a triangle choke and he flipped out and ran over my head and actually separated a couple ribs, like two or three of them. And so I was pretty, yeah, I was pretty incapacitated for a couple months. And during that time, I was still coming down and observing classes and just trying to absorb, you know, learn through osmosis, so to speak. And um, at that time, Cesar Gracie came to Santa Cruz and he did a seminar and I was introduced to him. And I found out that he was actually in Walnut Creek, which is about a 20 minute drive rather than an hour and 20 minute drive. And so he invited me to come check out his class. I went over there. Um, and kind of the rest is history. He, you know, he put me to the, I was really new, but he put me to the test. I knew a little bit, you know, I, in the, in the week and a half that I was started training, I took two classes a day for eight days. So I probably had like a month or two months worth of training compared to everybody else. And obviously, you know, I was an athlete and I was a point guard. And so studying not just the initial move, but you know, when you when you pass a ball in basketball, there's always gonna be five options off every pass, right? Okay. So I was always very interested in, you know, connecting the dots, so to speak. And it was extremely expensive to train um, there. <laughs> Back then it was to train one time a week with Caesar was $175 a month. To train mm. unlimited was $399. Ooh. Um, at the time, it's, I mean, it's kind of a known fact I was a poker dealer, you know, I was making okay money, but that was with a kid and with a daughter and having, you know, that was an expense I didn't want to incur. And so I, you know, I told him and he made me a deal to where if I showed up and was the Yuki, which is like the person people practice on, if I was the Yuki for the privates, that I could train there for free. So then I still had the same schedule. So what was happening is I was getting off work as early as possible getting over there to be the Yuki for the privates from eight o'clock to 10 o'clock. And then I would take the group class and then I would be do the, be the Yuki for a few more privates after. And then I would drive home and I would sleep for two and a half, three and a half hours. And then I would drive back and I would be the Yuki for privates before class and after class, after the group class in the evening. And then I would drive home and I would sleep for two or two and a half, three hours. And then I would get up and I would go to work. Real, real quick, when you wait, real quick, when you say the privates, you're ta- just for those that don't may not know that you're talking about ones that are doing one on one sessions, basically. Yes, people. Yes, people that are doing personal one on one jujitsu private lessons with Caesar. You know, we had a pretty good racket going. He would have me and Kurt Ossie under there, and like 
a guy would come in at 9.10 and a guy would come in at 9.20 and Caesar would show the guy, you know, he would demonstrate the moves on me and he would leave me to assist the guy while he would go over and do the same thing with Kurt. And then he would be going back and forth between the privates and there would be guys coming in at 9, 9 o'clock, 9.10, 9.30, 9.40, you know what I mean? And so he was charged... You know, he was raking it in. He was charging like, I don't know, 75, 100 bucks a half an hour. And really, you know, I mean, he was doing, he was working and showing the moves, but it was Kurt and I that were kind of guiding the guys through the moves. And for me, it was, it was, you know, I was learn, I was learning how to teach, which is what I do now. And I was able to absorb and get a lot of repetition in. And it's kind of how I, what is what allowed me to develop my teaching style. And then... Um, after about, I don't know, a year, Half Gracie came up and Half and Caesar joined up and formed a gym called Gracie Systems. And a lot of people don't know that that gym spawned like a lot of the talent that came, went to the UFC from North America, probably pre-2000. I mean, there was myself, there was Jake Shields, Gilbert Melendez, the Diaz brothers, Gil Castillo, some fighters that, you know, fought at a high level, but people probably wouldn't remember them now. Um, well, Dave Terrell obviously fought for mm -hmm. the UFC title, um, but right. some some other guys, Marty Armendariz, there were, there were just so many people that came out of that gym and kind of went their separate ways as they grew in jiu-jitsu and grew in, in, in MMA. And, but still, you know, that that's kind of where the roots are. Um, mm. And eventually Half wanted to open an academy in Mountain View. And so being from Santa Cruz, that was actually closer to home. And so I moved back to Santa Cruz and then I was commuting over the hill to pretty much do the same thing with Half. Um, and then Half and I kind of had a falling out and that's when a friend of mine suggested that I go to AKA. And so I walked into AKA to, he was gonna introduce me to Javier Mendez. And as I was walking in, Frank Shamrock was walking out and this was like two nights after he had just beaten Ensign Inouye for the King of Pancrase title. Hmm. And was just a few months prior to him making his UFC debut. Um, and so I came in and how um, Javier had a, he didn't have a jiu-jitsu program, but he had Brian Johnston running a submission grappling kind of school there. Right. You know, and at this, at this point I had three hours of basically full-time jiu-jitsu and full-time teaching. I was teaching pretty much most of the classes at the house at the Mountain View Academy half you know half was commuting down from the North Bay and so he would call me and tell me what classes to what techniques to show and then he would show up near the end of technique and kind of help refine some of the people and then it, training would start and he would be going around and and giving guys pointers during their training but I was getting a lot of teaching experience anyways I walked in and I met Brian and all of his students and you know that was back when it was jujitsu versus everybody so there was a little bit of attitude from Brian's students but you know I tapped out everybody including Brian and not in a mean way I wasn't mean about it and you know and answered questions that they asked and Brian who really what Javier said is Brian never really liked any of the people that came to the gym but he liked me and so because he liked me, that kind of carried a lot of weight with Javier. And so Javier, kind of the same with Caesar, I told him I, you know, I had part of the regressing, part of the falling out I had with Half was over me getting started in, in MMA, well, NHB back then. Right. You know, and so when I came to Javier, I told him that I 
you know, I aspired to fight MMA. When I got into jujitsu, that really wasn't my goal. But as I got into full-time jujitsu and realized that eventually I was going to have to fight if I wanted to have a school, it was different back then. It wasn't like there weren't tournaments every single weekend where you could go and get sponsors and make a living just doing jujitsu tournaments. I mean, most jujitsu guys, their goal was to, um, you know, fight and, and at a high level of NHB, either in Japan or in the United States in the UFC. So that became my goal. And so when I went to Javier, I told him what my goal was and he agreed to teach me striking and train me to train me in boxing and kickboxing in return for running a jiu-jitsu program at AKA. And so in early in early late 1997, early 1998, I founded the Brazilian jiu-jitsu program at AKA and I ran that until just shy of 2004 when Javier and I had a falling out and which was about a year before the Ultimate Fighter. I mean, we didn't even know about the Ultimate Fighter then, but I basically walked away from the sport when Javier and I had a falling out. And, you know, I was went back to dealing poker and was living with my girlfriend and some of the guys. When I was, when I was at AKA, you know, I, from being at Half Gracie's, I had taught BJ Penn Jiu-Jitsu. And when I was getting ready for my fight career, you know, BJ was getting, wanted to, he had just won the Worlds and he wanted to fight. And I told him, hey man, you need to come over here because this is where you're gonna learn striking. So I basically brought BJ Penn to AKA and we kind of formed this training group that we had to do at noon, which was when all of the classes were done and the gym was kind of in an empty period. And that's kind of what evolved into the AKA fight team training that Crazy Bob and Javier Mendez and a bunch of other guys are all involved in now. Okay, and so that started in, I don't know, 2000 or something like that. I, I'd have to look, you know, you're, as you get older, you're, your timeline kind of gets a little foggy. So it was before I fought Vitor Belfort in Pride, which I think was in 2000 or 2001. Yeah, you fought Vitor in 2001. Okay. So that, you know, I ran, I, I was fighting, um, training in the noon training, assisting in coaching, running the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu program there. And then Javier and I had a falling out. And I basically just walked away from the sport. And during that year or so that I was away from the sport, I was watching, you know, guys like Josh Thompson and Paul Buntello and some of the other guys making strides in their UFC and career, in their, you know, in their fighting career. And I was thinking to myself, man, I was smashing these guys in training. And I think I could really make another run at the sport. And so I called up Crazy Bob and he kind of smoothed things over with me and Javier. I mean, it wasn't really like there was a bad super bad blood we just had a falling out over money and there wasn't really any grudges held and so he allowed me to come back to the gym and when i came back to the gym everybody was talking about the ultimate fighter thing and i was like what is that and they were like oh it's just this thing they're doing this reality show and and i was all really i'm all that's interesting how does it how does it work and they're like will you send in a tape and I was like, oh, well, can I send in a tape? And Bob was like, well, they've kind of already, you know, I mean, re whatever, registration or whatever they were calling, enrolling, whatever they were calling it had passed. And I was like, come on, man, just send me a tape. And that was like my first day of training in well over a year. So that was like on a Tuesday. And I was so sore, I didn't come back to the gym till Friday. 
And, and I guess Bob was like, well, okay, go ahead, give me a tape and we'll send it in. And if you've seen any of the UFC recaps of the history of the show, like they were trying to cast the show. And first they were trying to catch cast um, posers, basically, you know, guys that were great personalities but couldn't fight. And eventually they were going to have to fight. And so Dana was like, no, we need fighters for the show if this is going to work. And then when they started casting fighters, you know, guys didn't pass the background check. They didn't pass the drug test. They didn't pass the steroid test, you know, and so guys were getting eliminated. And luckily, you know, I was one of the guys that was selected. And the rest is kind of, you know, not to sound cliche or douchey, but that I guess the rest is history. <laughs> Well, let, I mean, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, that's a great background, and you you actually answered a few of the questions that I had. So, like, yeah, bring if you want to get more, we can go back and get more no, no, no. I, stuff no. If you want. Well, let me ask one. Let me ask one question about the the background, the the Vitor fight that you mentioned in Pride. I mean, you were you'd only had four fights, you know, entering into that bout, and obviously you'd been you trained jujitsu for a while, but. Um, you, looking back now, you know, I, I really, you know, he had about 10 fights at that point. Do you think you were ready for somebody like Vitor? Are you glad you did that fight? Or do you think it was a little too much too soon? You know, uh, <clears throat> that's a good question. And Javier did not want me to take that fight. Um, I had already been, um, I don't want to say signed or selected, but there, I had a tentative, uh, fight for the UFC in July of that year. I, th I, can't, I think I fought Vitor in January or February. I don't remember. But um, I had a tentative fight with the UFC in July against schedule against Phil Baroni. Um, and Javier didn't want me to take the fight, okay? But at the time, I mean, Pride was the mecca, right? It was like... Right, absolutely. That everybody wanted to fight in Pride at that point. And I actually took that fight on like two weeks' notice. And it wasn't mm. like they selected me to fight. It was like... They needed an opponent for Vitor, and they asked, you know, like Guy Mesger and, and other guys, and those guys didn't want to fight Vitor on two weeks' notice. And my mindset was more that, you know, this is, you know, an opportunity knocks. If you don't answer, opportunity may not knock again. I was just thinking if Pride requested me to do this fight and I tell them no, there's a good shot I may never get a chance to fight here. And no. To answer your question, I wasn't ready to fight Vitor. Um, you know, I had zero wrestling skills. I had solid boxing and kickboxing skills and some jujitsu. But obviously, his rest—he had good. He had all of that. More experience. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> a boatload of enhance of chemical enhancements. You know, and it was Japan in the early 2000s. So oh yeah, yeah, I could tell you. I mean, I I could dig out my contract from Pride where. And I tell people this and laugh where the pride contract, if, it, if you've never heard this, it basically states that we will test, dr we will drug test you at the end of your fight. You know, we'll give you a urinalysis and we will test you for, and it lists basically every rec recreational drug known to man. And then it says in, in capital letters, we will not test you for <laughs> boldenone, anadrol, you know, and then it lists every single performance enhancing substance you could you could think of. So basically it's saying don't do drugs, do steroids in the comments. Yeah. Um, anyways, you know, it is what it is. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, and definitely I wasn't ready to walk out in front of 35,000 people in the Tokyo Dome, you know, was, but, you know, you get the call, you step up, or you don't really have any business being in the fight game. Because yeah. the fight game is all about stepping up.
Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it was. I, I think it got you some notoriety for sure, and whether it played into you making it onto the Ultimate Fighter, um, you know, only Dana and the producers would know that. But kind of segueing into the Ultimate Fighter before we get to to Strike Force, um, I, I, you know, I you were interviewed for um, I think UFC Fight Pass just recently, not too long ago. There's a segment up on you. Like, I, we don't have to dive um, too deep into that, but you know, obviously your your interactions with Chris Lieben alongside Koscheck and then. The, the weight cut, I mean, the, you had to cut 22 pounds in one day in order to make weight to fight. You know, these are things that, that you've definitely discussed. But just kind of broadly looking back on your time on the show, you know, what, what, what is your viewpoint now that you're, you know, a little bit older, a little bit wiser, that sort of thing? Looking back now, kind of how, do you, how do you view your time on The Ultimate Fighter? <laughs> well, I, I was kind of old on that show already. I was 35 when we filmed The Ultimate Fighter, um, just a little bit immature you know i mean it was that it's it was a great experience you know it's i would you know i i've been asked before if like, people offered me a chance to go back into the fighter house with a shot to make it into the ufc i would probably jump at the chance you know there's not when you're in when we're there obviously nobody knew what they were doing you know the producers nobody knew what was going on and if and most people still don't realize that that never was supposed to be a fight show hmm. that no one was going to fight on that show i mean and there are plenty of Plenty of interviews where you can get some of the guys that will will attest to that fact. That that was something that they developed deeper into the show. Um, but you know, there's very few opportunities where you get a chance to live all expenses paid, train with you know high high level you know the best trainers that you can find, and just really pursue your craft. And you know, it's it's a it's a nobody knew you know what this was going to do for the sport. I mean, unfortunately, if I knew what it was going to do for the sport, you know, when we were already there and they made us come in and sign a different contract, which kind of signed all of our rights away. If I had known what this was going to do for the sport, I never would have signed that contract because, you know, residuals on and, or and blue skies and residuals or whatever, right. all those things, we, we all would have, you know, lived comfortably. But again, it's about stepping up and you, you, you know, the guys in the NFL could look forward and see, you know, when Jim, when Jim Brown was playing, if he could look forward and see what, you know, the running backs of today were making, do you think he would have signed his contract? <laughs> right. You know, no. and it's, so it's like, you know, there's this whole lawsuit going on and I'm not going to disparage any of the people or the athletes that are, I'm not involved in it and I probably won't be, um, it's just you knew what you were signing. You knew what you were signing at the time, and whether the UFC strong armed you, you can't really fault them for that. I mean, it's the goal of any business is to make as much money as it can while right. limiting its expenditures, right? Right. And all of us, you know, we're, we're the type of guys that are going to take. I'm, I'm not really a gambler, you know, but fighting to me is one of the best. It's fifty fifty. Those are the best odds you're going to get in life, right? You're not. You're not born with the 50-50 shot at being a millionaire. That's why they call the rich people one percenters. Hmm. Okay, so it's to go back and complain about it now. I think is after the fact is it's not something that I would do. You know, yeah. if, if this the lawsuit goes down and suddenly a check comes, it's not like I'm not going to spend the money, but I'm not going to go. You know, it was a great experience, and look what it did for the sport. I mean, if honestly, if a perfect storm. They 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 got the right group of guys to make the first season that, that what went on in the first season with all the house drama, the weight cutting, the way the fights unfolded. 
you know, and I've been asked a lot of time about, about the Stefan Bonner fight. And, you know, I think I won that fight. And I mean, rather, I know I won that fight because they wouldn't let us see the scorecards. You know, Chuck and I wanted to see the scorecards and they wouldn't let us see the scorecards at the end of the fight. You know, so it was a little bit of, I think, of a reality show politics with that whole debacle between me and Josh and Chris. They wanted one guy from each team to leave. So since Josh beat Chris, you know, that's that's just what I think, you know, but maybe I'm a paranoid conspiracy person, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, there's a lot um, of people that feel the same way as you do about that fight, so. Yeah, you know. I mean, at the very least, it should have gone a third round, but when you look at it in in the in like what the that season and what the finale did for the sport if i had beat stefan and gone on to the final to fight forrest would that fight have been the fight that stefan and forrest put on you know what i mean i i I don't i mean it's just the way that whole season unfolded and the way everything played out is is 90 percent of the reason the ufc is where is that it's at today oh yeah Um, you know and i can look back and you know i'm i'm happy with that you were part you were a part of that yeah, you know, it's like there's not too many people can say that they were directly responsible for growing one of the biggest, for helping to grow one of the biggest sports franchises in the world. I mean, obviously, their marketing and all of the business decisions, you know, I'm not trying to take credit for that. There's a whole lot more. But if that season had flopped, it wouldn't be where it is today. And it didn't flop because of the guys that were on it. And that's yeah. just a memory and, a, and, a, and a, something all 16 of us can can take. Absolutely. Well, let's let's shift gears to Strike Force. I wanna I wanna make sure that we touch on, uh, especially since this podcast is about Strike Force. I definitely want to yes. delve into your <laughs> your time there. But uh, you you had a very inauspicious debut, not through no fault of your own. You you fought against James the Sandman Irvin, although saying you fought is probably a bit of a reach since it wasn't really much of a fight. Seventeen seconds in, one of the most infamous moments in Strike Force history. The cage opens when you push uh, Irvin up against it and. That's it. That's all she wrote. Talk to us about, uh, you know, you'd been out of the cage for a while. Talk to us about your mindset, you know, kind of as as you crash through the door and then, you know, any feelings. Because I'll kind of lump two questions here together, but both Frank Shamrock and Phil Baroni, who were on commentary, they were pretty harsh on Irvin about, you know, he had trouble making weight, it sounded like. And, you know, maybe he was looking for a way out. Kind of looking back on that unfortunate incident what, what are your thoughts on it now? What did you think about it then? And, and you know, kind of what did you walk away from that event um, feeling like uh, you needed to needed to do next? Um, you know, bottom line, I think that he did quit. You know, no disrespect to James. Um, if you watch the clip, he throws a leg kick that I check and I catch him with the counter left hook that I'm pretty sure broke his nose. At the time, I didn't realize that. You know, James, he's, he's a, a powerful striker, and our game plan was to take him down. And so I hit him with that shot, shot in to get the double leg. And obviously, when we hit the cage, we fell out. And I didn't realize that he was literally out on his feet. If I had to hit him with that hook, slid back, and stepped in with another shot, the fight would have been over. Um, but you've heard the commentary first. He, he wakes up and looks at me, and he's all did you break my nose? And I got off and I was like, I don't know. And I backed away. And then he was like, you know, grabbing his right ankle, then his left ankle, then his left knee. You know what I mean? And then he chose not to continue. I mean, and it that hurt me in the sense that they called it a no contest. Um, if the cage door hadn't have opened, he could have hurt his knee or his ankle or whatever. He claimed that he hurt inside of the cage and the fight would have been stopped and I still would have won. So I don't, 
it cost me money. So obviously that's something that yeah. sticks in your craw for a while. Um, you know, and, and I just wanted to get a good, you know, get a good performance in and, and complete a good fight against a good opponent and show everybody what I could do. And, you know, with the Bonner fight, you know, that obviously that was a sore point. And then the next fight I had trained, you know, I actually had trained for some other fights that I was supposed to do with the IFC and, one of those had fallen through a, an opponent actually had faked his blood results or something like that because oh. he had hepatitis or something like that oh, wow. so i actually had a couple had trained for a couple fights that fell through through no fault of my own before getting that fight against james so i was training and i was always in the gym obviously i was teaching jujitsu and and working with the team and you know i was just just wanted to get a good performance and that's all I was thinking. It was like, again, this is happening to me again. I can't catch a break. Well, you're, I mean, your next fight, uh, you thankfully were able to make up for that. And I, it was six months later, you fight Vernon the Tiger White, who was also a USC veteran um, for the inaugural Strike Force Light Heavyweight Championship. Uh, number one, I, I mean, it was just no disrespect to you or to Vernon, but kind of an interesting choice. Uh, you have... Basically, you're coming off of, you know, that situation with Irvin um, and Vernon White. He'd lost two straight fights. He had a sub 500 record. Kind of an interesting choice in my mind to have both of you, you know, face off. But the way that Coker would set up his fights, you know, he, you were a local guy and, and obviously going to be the, the fan favorite for that fight and set you up with somebody that has a name, but, you know, but you could definitely beat. I mean, he did that with Paul Buentello with Tank Abbott. You know, that, that's, he did that a lot with Kung Lee early on where, you know, you set guys up to kind of, you know, get a win over a respected veteran. And that seemed to be the thinking and the booking there. Um, and you, you know, you took Vernon down and you used your takedowns and, and you won the fight and it was a, a huge win. And you go down in history as the, the first strike force light heavyweight champion. So uh, just kind of walk us back to being offered that fight and kind of what your thinking was, you know, you're coming off, like you said, the Bonner and the Irvin situation, you really want to make good kind of what was your, your, your mindset when you got offered the fight and then training for somebody like Vernon White? Um, I'm, I was extremely grateful to get that opportunity, you know, and I mean, I understand the matchmaking, but like, and like you said, Vernon, he's definitely was definitely a cagey veteran. I mean, in total at that time, he probably had like 80 or 90 fights. I don't know. A yeah, he had, he had a lot of, I think he had, he had about 50 recorded MMA fights, which, you know, he goes back to the days where the, not all the fights are on the record. But, yeah. I, I mean, he had tons of fights, yes. Yeah. And so, and he had fought some really tough guys. And, you know, he fought Machida, he fought Mario Sperry, he fought a lot of tough guys. And, you know, I was thinking, wow, this is going to be a tough fight for me. You know, because Vernon's experienced. Um, he comes from a solid camp. I mean, I, you know, I know the Lions Den guys weren't the most technical guys, but they were always tough. They were always in shape, and they always came. You know, they always came to fight. So, you know, I was thinking, man, this is going to be a tough fight. You better be ready for this. Um, I wanted to put on a good performance, but you know, Vernon, his career is known for making ugly fights, you know, and a lot of, you know, they say it takes two people to fight and I was trying to win that fight. You know, I was trying to finish Vernon. I heard him with some kicks some punches, some good ground and pound. I went for some submissions. He's just, you know, he's extremely hard to submit and he's not easy to knock out. I mean, Chuck Liddell didn't even knock him out. He just punched him in the eye and right. then Vernon couldn't continue. So it's, I mean, he's an, he was an extremely durable fighter, but I learned a lot in that fight you know, about myself and, 
you know, I, I trained for several. I mean, I have like seven belts going back before the UFC, and I've, I've trained for five-round fights before, so it was nothing new. I just knew it was going to be a tough fight, and I was grateful to get the opportunity. And I went in and I tried to put on the best performance of my life against a guy who it's very difficult to look good against. No, I mean, Machida didn't even look. Nobody looks good against Vernon. I mean, he's just, that's what he does, you know. But that's what yeah. he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, not doing that anymore, obviously. But you're, he's an awkward fighter. I mean, there's no no doubt about that. But regardless, you clearly won the won the fight. So looking back now, you said you had a bunch of belts before before this. But I mean, this is your essentially your hometown promotion. It's a big win after you know the Bonner and the the Irvin fights. How does it feel, or how did it, you know if you can remember that that far back? How does it feel? You know, getting your hand raised in the cage, knowing that you're the first one ever. You did it in front of a hometown crowd. You're a Santa Cruz product. You come from AKA. What What was the feeling like? How special was it to to know that you had accomplished something like that? I mean, it was. I mean, like the only better moments in my life are probably of seeing seeing my children born. I mean, it ranks right up there with that. You know, it was just you know like agony, ecstasy. Um, Joy, sorry. I mean, it was just an extremely emotional moment, you know, because Strike Force was a legitimate promotion. It was probably the number two promotion in the world at that time. And to be the inaugural, you know, world champion and world champion is something that lasts forever. Like you said, I'm the first guy to win the belt. Not only that, I'm the only guy to ever defend it. And if you talk to any fighter, they'll, they'll tell you that any anybody can win a belt, but a real champion defends it. And so right. that's just something that you know, that was what I was thinking at the end of the fight was, you know, it's now the real work starts because I need to defend this belt. So it's not just a flash in the pan thing. Um, you know, and it was, you know, Scott, you know, he's a he's a smart promoter. I mean, I think I got that opportunity, obviously, because I was still carrying a pretty good head of steam from the whole Ultimate Fighter and the riot and the UFC's, you know, incredible growth. So. You know, that definitely helped me get that title fight. I, I mean, I trust me, I've heard all the, seen the articles and all, why are they making this fight? Why is Bobby getting the title shot? All those things. But like I said in the beginning, fighting's about stepping up. I'm the guy they called. I stepped up. I won the belt. Well, it's it, like you said, it's nothing that can ever be taken away from you. And, and you did defend the belt. Um, you, you, you know, you were able to, you had some other fights as well. You end up with a 10-6-1 and one, um, record. L looking back on your career, you know, definitely some extreme highs and, and some lows uh, as well. Do you, how do you look back on your career? Uh, I got one or two questions after this about Strikeforce, but just overall beyond just Strikeforce, looking back on your career, how do you how do you how do you view it? Are you you, you satisfied with it? Do you have any regrets? Like what, what what's your overall viewpoint at this point? I mean, I'm overall I'm satisfied my, with with my career. Definitely, there are some regrets. Um, I wish I could have fought more. Like you mentioned, the the ten six and one record. Technically, I don't even think the the two tough fights that I had are part of that record. They're not. Other, yeah, which they're not counted. No. I have some other kickboxing fights, some amateur boxing fights, and things like that. And there are just a plethora of fights that I trained for that fell through due to opponents pulling out or getting injured and things like that. So that's just the fight game, you know, and I came into the game late. I didn't even know what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was until I was almost 25 years old. I didn't grow up wrestling or doing martial arts. I was just a basketball player and a surfer, you know, and so when I look back at my career, and really I was just like you, I was a fan of the sport. 
I was a fan of, I watched the first UFCs and started watching UFCs. Then I started training jujitsu. Then I started competing in jujitsu, you know, and, and, you know, like surfers as a surfer, you're always looking for the next, the next big wave or the next good ride. And so I was always looking for the next thing. And so when the, the opportunity to, came to fight, I took it and, you know, I'm just a regular, I guess, ex keyboard warrior, you know, a guy that was on all of the forums <laughs> and had lots to say about fights and things like that, who just kept taking the next step and the next step and made it to the highest levels of the sport and performed, you know, better than most. Huh. And not, not many people can say that, like you said about the ultimate fighter, there are only, you know, there are tons that try to, to get to that level and, and you did, and, and, you know, you're remembered more than, even some that that made the UFC, so it's 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 definitely something that can't be taken away from you as far as legacy goes. Um, I do want to ask. I, I know you're on uh, you're on Instagram. Where can fans find you on social media? Uh, you said you're still teaching. Uh, what's tell us what what that you know what you're you know what that's about and and any any other projects that you want to mention. So if anybody's interested, you can find me on uh, two spots on Facebook, Facebook uh, slash Bobby Southworth or Facebook at B South BJJ. Um, you can find me on Instagram at the real B South. And I, I'm teaching. I still have students, but I was teaching out of there was a UFC gym here in town. Unfortunately, during the pandemic, the owners sold the gym kind of without notice and really without telling us. So I'm in the process of getting a gym up and running. Um, getting my business plan together, looking at real estate. I have a spot that we're looking for. It's just right now, it's extremely risky. I think reopening a business right now, I think is less risky than opening a new business right now. Um, we could get, be, I don't want to sign a multi-year lease and get thrown into another lockdown and be stuck with rent and zero revenue. So it's just a risky prospect right now, but I'll be opening a gym, a.k.a. American Kickboxing Academy San Antonio, a.k.a. San Antonio, um, and Bobby Southworth Jiu-Jitsu. Um, just keep an eye out on social media. Um, I'll be, you know, and this this will go probably go down within the next three to six month, months. I was looking for a tentative opening date of September, hoping, hoping that, the, you know, COVID was going to subside, but there's been this resurgence, especially here in Texas. So my second date was going to be January. Um, all we can do, you know, all we can do is is wait and and ride out this situation. I know it's tough for everybody. I'm not complaining. I, I feel like a lot of people have it worse than I do. So, by no means am I complaining. I'm just, you know, biding my time. I've got 50 or 60 students and 20, 15 to 25 kids that are hoping hoping we reopen. Some people are starting to train at other gyms, and hopefully they'll come back when when I open my spot. But if not. I'm still going to open my gym. I'm still going to grow my business, and I'm still going to have a solid Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA program. Awesome. That's awesome. We'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, one final question before we let you go, just bringing it back to Strike Force one more time. Um, what, what, is, what does Strike Force mean to Bobby Southworth, in, in a word? What, what, how, how do you view Strike Force? Oh, man, that's hard to put it into a word. word. I mean... Strike okay, se uh, several several words is fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Force just gave me a chance to to cement myself. I think not in in the in the history of MMA, not necessarily the history of the UFC, but in MMA as a whole. Um, being the first champion, being the one guy, the only man to defend the belt, you know, world champion lasts forever. It's something nobody can take from me. I still have my belts. Um, 
you know, I'm, ext I'm extremely grateful for all of the opportunities that MMA has afforded, afforded me. Um, not just MMA, but Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well, but the opportunities to travel and see the world, um, to basically be self-employed to, I mean, I've, <clears throat> I feel like I've lived a pretty good life and I think that Jiu-Jitsu and MMA have provided that for me and I, I have no, no complaints, maybe some regrets, but who doesn't have regrets? But, you know, my, my chin's up, I got a smile on my face and, you know, we'll see what comes next. Awesome. Well, Bobby, I really appreciate it. Uh, first ever Strike Force light heavyweight champion, a true legend in the sport. I appreciate your time. Thank you for being on Inside the Hexagon. Thank you for having me, Phil. Appreciate it. All right, I want to thank my very special guest, Bobby Southworth, for taking the time to join us for today's episode. Uh, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with him, getting to know him a little bit, and hearing his perspective on things, uh, hearing about his, his time on The Ultimate Fighter, uh, training to get ready for Vernon White, the James uh, Irvin fight, just just a lot of, of perspective from him, him, and I really enjoyed getting to talk with him. I hope that you enjoyed it. hope that you enjoy the, the episodes that we are putting out, that, that you're getting uh, a lot out of them we're really working hard to make these as high quality as possible and we would love uh, your feedback you can reach me at phil at inside the hexagon.com uh, you can also check out our website www.insidethehexagon.com uh, you can also connect with us on social media at inside the hexagon on both twitter and instagram we'd love to hear from you we'd love to connect with you and get your your feedback your thoughts uh your praise <laughs> your your criticism as long as it's delivered in a constructive manner uh, we'd love to hear from you uh Looking ahead, we've got some great episodes coming up. I'm really excited about our next episode. We're going to be talking about a very controversial event. Uh, it's Strikeforce Shamrock versus Baroni. Uh, the backstory on this is amazing. You hear about the, the forced partnership between Elite XC and Strikeforce and how Frank Shamrock had contracts with both promotions that kind of forced a marriage of sorts. Uh, so we talk about that. Uh, we also talk about the buildup for the Frank Shamrock Phil Baroni fight, which is one of my favorite fights to watch. It is such a, an electric bout. I mean, the crowd is just on fire and to see Frank's antics and just his confidence, uh, which is just increasing as the fight goes on. It, it's great. Uh, you got Paul Semtex Daly versus Dwayne Bang Ludwig. Uh, you've got Josh Thompson in action. You've got Kung Lee taking on Jason. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you have Kung Lee uh, taking on uh, a very game Tony the Freak Frickland. Uh, also a very entertaining bout. So just a lot to dive into. Uh, you've got Ninja Hua taking on Joey Villasenor for the Elite XC middleweight title, uh, which is uh, also a very good bout. And just I mean crazy seesaw uh, situation as far as Ninja not being cleared and then being cleared and it just crazy, crazy stuff. So there's a, a lot of backstory in that. I'm really excited to get into all of that. So we've got that coming up uh, the week after we're going to be talking more about that event. Um, I've got, I do have an interview in the can with John Nash from bloody elbow where we, we talk about that, but I may have a, I, I'm scheduled at this point to talk to a very special guest. As I record this, I'm not going to reveal who it is because I, I, it's not until it happens. It hasn't happened. Uh, but that may, that may be the next episode or we'll, we'll put up my conversation with Don, John Nash. Either way, uh, you'll hear from John Nash. It's either going to be a bonus episode or it's going to be, uh, the, the episode for the 
the week after we talk about Shamrock versus Brony. But we've got some really exciting stuff coming up. Uh, we've got the uh, the very first Playboy Mansion show coming up as well. We're going to be talking with some various fighters in the coming weeks. So just stay tuned. Help us rate and review the show. Spread the word. Get the word out. I hope that you got a chance to listen to me on MMA Junkie Radio's podcast. Uh, I just got to talk, or I just appeared on there to talk about uh, the show and kind of what precipitated us putting it together. So I hope that you've gotten a chance to look that up. Uh, but yeah, we just really appreciate all the support that we're getting. We're hoping that you're helping share the word. Tell your, your MMA fan friends about the show and let's get it out there as much as we possibly can. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. sunset. Hope that you stay safe and that you stay healthy and we will see you soon. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.